0: I'm Matt Booker.
1: I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Diego Baez here five years later on Concavity Show.
2: Hey, welcome back, Diego Baez. Yeah, it has been five years. So, longtime listeners of the show might remember that we had you on in 2018 in April for episode 37 when you were on with Andrea Lawrence L Sheridan. We were talking about David Foster Wallace society stuff and diversity mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and now almost, uh, yeah, over five years ago, here we are. And life has changed a little bit for some of us. <laughs> yeah, Big developments in that time. Pandemics <laughs> and new children and all that kind of stuff. Welcome back, man. It's great to see you. Thank
1: you, guys. Thank you.
0: And this time we're here to uh, talk about your book and not Dave Foster Wallace. For the record, I have zero questions for you about, about Wallace.
2: Um, I have one. I made one connection Okay. society in <laughs> um,
0: I do have to put in a plug that we just published issue four of our journal, which was delayed for like two and a half years due to the pandemic. So it still feels like you know how corporations are like returning to the office, like it's taken all this like <laughs> yeah. years of negotiation to be like, okay, finally, are we getting back to not normal, but the new normal, but it's like, we're coming back out of that publishing mm-hmm. journals. We've got Diego back on the show. It feels like maybe it's taken us five years yeah. to ramp up to this. So
1: nature's
0: back, healing. <laughs> Um, so for people who are were not around, we've built our, our, our audience a little bit since then. Um, I'm gonna give your basically bio from um, the book, uh, which uh, uh, we're gonna ask you to pronounce here because we would probably mm-hmm. not pronounce it in Guarani. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I assume it's a Guarani yeah. word. Um, can you can you for pronounce sure? It yeah. For us? So
1: the the title of the book is Yawarete White which is comes from the Wadani and means I mean essentially white jaguar Um, but part of the part of my intention and kind of making it difficult to read uh, hopefully reflects some of the themes of the book in terms of just difficulty and confusion and sort of something of a sense of bewilderment so even to yeah. begin with the title that's kind of like i like how it looks but i realized very quickly like this is hard to pronounce like i don't know if anyone's <laughs> going to be able to read the title but yeah there it is yeah, yeah. There's a lot of,
2: like linguistic Yawarite. whiplash in this book mm-hmm. like a
1: lot of english and spanish and uh,
2: mm-hmm. yeah all, all three yeah.
0: and we'll get into that but the, the book is coming out it's officially published in february um we're recording this um middle of december so by the time people hear it, they they can pre-order the book from uh, U- it's University of Arizona Press. It's forthcoming, and f- again, for people who don't know you or, or are only familiar with you through um, your involvement in the Wallace Society, I'm going to read your bio from the book, which it says Diego Baez is a writer, educator, and abolitionist. Want to ask mm. you about that yeah me too <laughs> he is the recipient of fellowships from canto mundo the surge institute the poetry foundation's incubator for community engaged poets he has reviewed books for booklist harriet books boston globe other writing has appeared or is forthcoming in freeman's I really like freeman's the georgia review and latino poetry a new anthology live in chicago teach at city College. And I, you used
1: to be, I don't know if you still are on the board of the National Book Critics I Circle. was, I cycled off earlier this okay. year. So 22 okay. was my last okay. year, and um, I hope to rejoin at some point in the future, gotcha. but man, it is a commitment, and I wasn't able, I just, <laughs> I needed to step away for a little while. You weren't yeah. prepared for that,
0: and, then, uh, and they, they had some issues when you were there. That's too.
1: why I came on, actually. I mean, I don't know how, how much we don't want to get into it, but I was very fortunate <laughs> to kind of step in at a time of transition, and then... I really enjoyed it made a lot of great people but then yeah it just it really demands more than I was able to give it at the time so gotcha
0: um so yeah a- abolitionist uh you want to tell us what you're advocating for the yeah absolutely
1: I, <laughs> I mean a lot of things This I was surprised this was the first question I got when I did a reading at Wilbur Wright College which is one of the other city colleges here in Chicago and right off the bat that's what one of the students asked she was like abolitionist, what do you mean by that? And I was glad for that because nobody had brought it up before. I don't have a chance to have that many conversations about it, so I was really grateful for that. It also gave me practice because I hope I hope to be able to talk about it more. I mean, the long and the I mean, I guess the short of it is, um, I fundamentally believe that institutions like the police and prisons don't make society better. That in fact, they just exacerbate relations, you know, capitalist relations on as the status quo and. In fact, hurt more people than they help. Yeah. Um. I mean, you can expand out from that and say that like even ways of thinking and ways of of behaving in the world and interacting with other people too can. It doesn't have to be. It's not just the existence of police and prisons. It's how we police our own thoughts and our own actions, etc. And we can get more narrow than that too. Because I'm also like I'm an optimist. I do believe that a society can function without those institutions. I also believe that like individual individuals who are either officers themselves or working in the prisons can also be (laughs) rehabilitated. Like, I don't think that they are all bad people. I don't think that that's true. Um, so I I have to be an optimist, but I'm also a realist. Like I know this is going to happen overnight. And in fact, if it were to happen overnight, it'd cause way more problems than than it solves. Um, the reason that I, that I put it in my bio is because I can't, I'm not on the forefront of this thinking. There are a lot of, especially black women who are doing great thinking like Angela Davis and Mariam Kaba and, and others, Ruth um, Wilson-Gilmore, who, who are way smarter than me and just have the experiences to speak in a way that is very, I find very convincing. So I feel like there are other ways that I can try to uh, like put forward this agenda. And one way is just to throw it in my bio and hope that people ask about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's a little risky because like, like I say, there are people who are, who are really putting their lives where their mouths are, and I'm I I'm trying to do that. Um, but this just seems like a first step, you know, to just even start a conversation with folks who might mm-hmm. be like, "Oh, what do you mean by that? Like that sounds kind of intense. Like, what is that all about?" Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, it's it's a big topic of conversation, obviously, since uh, George Floyd, and uh, you know, I was involved in some community activism here in Austin and in Texas where you know there was sort of backlash and then backlash mm-hmm. to the backlash and the police were very antagonistic in our city about um, defunding the police and abolishing mm-hmm. the police. And they basically put out a misinformation campaign saying that Austin had defunded the police. And in fact, they had increased police mm-hmm. funding, but they had actually stopped responding to certain mm-hmm. calls. And so it was almost like if you did abolish the police, I don't know that you would notice because they didn't respond to anything mm-hmm. anyways. Like there's tons and tons of stories, even now, of people who call the police for robbery, theft, burglary, and they just don't – they just say, what do you want mm-hmm. us to do? Mm-hmm. You know, We're not going to file a report. We're not coming out there. Or they're not going to pick up. Or they say, okay, we'll send someone out, and they mm-hmm. never do. And th- that sort of – um I don't know. A- antagonism at the community level where, you know, the, it's us against them. That feels very not conducive to community. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, would, I would love to um, just make a whole show about that, but we want to talk about your poems. <laughs> so I think this is the first real true book of poetry. We've I was going to say show, that too. That struck day. me
2: as I was, as I was thinking about this, we've never had, yeah, book of poetry as the as the core piece that we were we were looking at. So this I is feel
0: a
1: cool very honored. I'm not kidding. Cool move for us.
0: <laughs> well, well, we we are really excited about it because you know Dave and I were kind of chatting a little bit today behind the scenes and and saying you know for me this is a different type of poetry and that you really do play with form mm-hmm. a lot and you know there's some stuff that's maybe even like prose poetry mm-hmm. in here or found poems. Um, Postcards. Do you want to yeah. talk about your, yeah, like your background as a poet? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I knew you as like a critic before I knew you as a poet. So, like, I wouldn't say it was a surprise to me that you're publishing a book of poetry. But like, it sounds like you've been always writing poetry. Yeah. Is that, right?
1: Oh, yeah. For a very long time. Um, the earliest, the earliest drafts of some of these poems I found in my email back in from like 2007, 2008. Oh, wow, okay. Not not most so. of them, but a couple of them. Like um, one poem, The Skin, uh, I drafted an early version via email before I was even in, in grad school. That was that long ago. And it has made it into the book. But when I realized <laughs> that, I was wow. like, okay these, these poems need to be in the world I need to be I need to move on I need to be done with these um, <laughs> not just living in your gmail drive <laughs> exactly yeah my google yeah. docs for your cloud but 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 yeah so I've been on I've been at work on writing poems for I guess well how long has that been 13 14 15 years like you know seriously I think um and then putting them into the container of the book didn't really didn't really happen until more recently and in, in about 2017, I felt like I had a book together. I had enough poems mm. to, like, comprise a book. And I started asking some folks to look at it, some, some mentors and friends and other folks, and quickly learned that, like, there's a lot I could do differently. And so then fast forward, you know, four or five years, and it finally gets into a, basically the shape that was it's in now – minus the the title so the title and the title poem and then a couple a couple of poems came later but the title and the title poem changed pretty recently I mean it feels it feels both recent and kind of a long time ago because it was in 20 I want to say 2021 um, I had a, a dear friend Rosebud Benoni she's a great poet um, give me some edits and look at it and the title at the time was called valleys full of jaguars and it was meant to be ironic because mm. there aren't that I've never seen a jaguar in, in Paraguay. I've never encountered one. I don't think they're that that um, you know pop not popular is not the right word, but there's not that many of them. Mm. And Rosebud was like, "There's no jaguars in your book. You need to change the title." <laughs> I was <laughs> like, "Okay, fair. <laughs> <laughs> the irony's not landing there. Fine." And so I, I kind of thought about it. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to explore both ends of this identity, which is my dad is from Paraguay, and so there's that. And then my mom's uh, white from Pennsylvania, and then there's so there's there's that.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I thought, why don't I? throw these terms together um, because so much of the, so many of the poems are about like language. And like you said earlier, um, Dave, ling- linguistic whiplash, which I like, I wrote that down. Uh, <laughs> cool. I wanted to kind of combine them together. Yeah. And then I wrote the title poem in more or less one sitting because it kind of, it just felt like a, the right way to frame what then became the rest of the the book. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's been, it's been a journey. I'm very happy. It's also weird. I mean, Matt, I know you, you published I know we're not doing video, but I know you published your book yeah. uh, recently, and it's weird, right, yes. to like finish yes. a thing, and then you you're done with it. Nobody else has read it yet, right. and you're just kind of like, will anybody? <laughs> will anybody read it? <laughs> Is it going to be a thing? And so I'm, I'm I feel very grateful to like talk with you guys about this, and just kind of twiddling my finger, my thumbs until until February when ho- hopefully more people will
2: yeah. read it. <laughs> totally, yeah. Well, we're very like yeah, feel I mean, very they're... privileged and honored that you sent this to us early, that we got a, a sneak glimpse of it, and we got to experience this before like most people in the world. It feels like uh, <laughs> early
1: adopters, very
2: wonderful. <laughs> early adopters, yeah. So thank you for for uh, for sending it our way. It's mm-hmm. a delight.
0: And, and that was a pretty good summary you were giving mm-hmm. there of you know your mom and your dad and your identity is you know that's probably the main subject totally. of the book, if yeah. not one of the main subjects of the book, and. I mean, Paraguay obviously plays a big part uh, in your identity yeah. and in you know the language. I didn't know much about, honestly, didn't know anything about Guarani, Guarani, as you say, yeah. um, until reading this and went to look up some YouTube videos to hear people speak it because reading it is... Uh, impossible if you mm-hmm. don't know how it's pronounced. I mean, in your head, you're just making it up. So phonetically, <laughs> um, I, I think it's a really interesting choice um, for some of these poems. Do you want to talk about like that decision, or, or you know, did you grow up hearing your dad say a lot of these words, and it was sort of
1: baked into your childhood? Childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both. I mean, like, like you, you described it actually quite accurately because there, it's kind of both. Where I did grow up. My I have two really core memories of my dad speaking what I need. The first is on the phone, and this was before cell phones were super popular, and they certainly weren't um, in, in Putaway. But he would have his calling card, so he'd punch in his, like, 27 numbers to call the, like, I don't know what's the equivalent now. It's like a phone booth, like, station that they have in downtown Vietnam yeah, yeah, yeah. where yeah. my mm-hmm. dad's family's from. And so he'd call whoever on the other end and just have to shout into the, into the headset, into the handset rather, because the connection was so bad. And it would drop all the time. But that's like a, it's a core memory growing. It was my dad shouting in the background in Wadani. And like, like you say, if you listen to, it, if anyone wants to go onto YouTube and listen to it, it's an incredibly interesting language. Like it's very nasally. It's got a lot of like short sounds and like, I, I don't, I don't speak a whole lot of it myself. I'm trying to learn a little bit more so I can, like, we do – there are a couple vocab words that I'll work with my um, my daughter on, um, like, "pu" is foot, and kambu is milk, and I don't know, there's some others, but um, – hmm. You got to do the water. Yeah, maybe. yeah. It's like, yeah. uh, it's like, uh, it's like, or like, yeah. sort of, yeah. That's water. <laughs> <laughs> but it's spelled – why why right? Like, like and it's in like, Spanish, right? yes, it's a great yeah. section it's on that.
0: It's very there. hard to <laughs> – Very hard to conceive of that, but, uh, and and it's not like cognates with Spanish, I should say, like this is an indigenous language, Mm -hmm, right? mm
1: -hmm. And it's, one, it was, um, not sanctified, that's not the right word. It was adopted. I mean, it was adopted by the state, you know, um, of Paraguay as one of the two national languages. So it is taught in the schools. Um, Mm, Cool. I mean, my dad grew up in the, like the country, like a village outside a town and so they speak it more in the rural areas anyways. And they kind of mix it with Spanish um, into Jopara, which is like like Spanglish sort of, but with Guarani. Huh. And so now, though, even my, my cousins, my primates who grow up in the city, they learn it in school. And it's interesting. Again, it's like it's so interesting because I grew up with it as a part of me. It's in the household. I can't really speak it. And then when we go down there, we don't really observe. or It was hard for me as a kid as, or as a young person to observe the different dynamics where they don't speak Wadani so much in the cities because city life requires a different kind of vocabulary than country life. Right. Hmm. And also though, if you're like hanging out with some friends or family members and you're making jokes and teasing each other, Wadani really lends itself to that. But if you're trying to talk about like your bank account or your know, resume <laughs> or whatever, it doesn't. The Anything related to, to capitalism right? sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, Interesting, and, and so in, the way I've tried to work it into the book is, is uh, sometimes popping in vocabulary words that felt right and other times trying to be I guess honest or authentic about the fact that I don't actually speak this language fluently Mm -hmm. um, which is weird Mm -hmm. it's a weird territory to navigate I think as a poet
2: (laughs) yeah and the whole kind of theme of this book is like your experience trying to navigate nationalities languages borders being American having heritage from Paraguay like that is this this the fabric of this book and you and you're working through negotiating that, and then with your parents, with yourself, and also with your daughter, with the next generation of how does all this familial, generational heritage and lineage and nationality all intermingle and work together? And it makes for a really rich and and sort of fascinating uh, book of poetry that's all thematically linked from start to finish. And uh, and it's interesting that like you, there's a note at the back that a bunch of these poems were published in other places earlier right and now they are a collection but there's such a great cohesion to it even though they've come from such a long period of time like you said and and i think the probably the period of time did a lot of justice to this Mm -hmm. work because it gave you the time to uh write about different experiences from different sort of geological time periods in your life being a child being an adult being a father um thinking back on your childhood as an adult man with your own child now, like that lends itself to a lot of different ways of thinking about your own childhood, I think. Um, so all that stuff weaves throughout this book of poetry and it makes for just a really rich,
1: wonderful reading experience. I appreciate you you saying that and that that whole dimension of my Mm -hmm. own experience of fatherhood didn't exist four and a half years ago. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And it enriches the book so wonderfully. You know, it'd be a diff- I, I, it'd feel well, like a different I, book in
2: some ways without it. Yeah, yeah
1: I, I think yeah. you're absolutely right about that. Like, I had a bunch of poems before, and mm-hmm. then opening this totally different door, um, in a sense, I've been – I don't think I coined this phrase, but I've been thinking about the bi-directionality of inheritance, where obviously mm-hmm. we take things from our parents, we give things to our children, but we also take things from our children. And in a sense, like, this book doesn't exist without my kid being born, because it just mm-hmm. – changed my relationship to like you said my own memories and experiences as a kid but also like now yeah. now what am i trying to pass on linguistically yeah. and culturally and familially etc yeah.
0: mm-hmm. well it, it, you mentioned the first poem which does basically say there are no jaguars <laughs> in, in your you know my father's village in, in paraguay and you know one of the uh, explanations i was reading for why warani survived uh, as an official language was that the Spanish didn't really care about Paraguay and they didn't send over very many like colonists. They didn't put as many people there. So most of it was single men who were marrying Guarani women and they had children who were bilingual, just exactly like what you're describing. And so you have these bilingual kids and you know they didn't send over a lot of Spanish women, so they've just got these Spanish men who are really intermarrying with the indigenous people, and that's how the sort of language survived. Probably was that you know mothers and their their children were passing this down uh, from from generation to generation. Whereas you know other countries in Mexico, where the the Spanish were really sort of uh, terrorizing and and bringing over tons and tons of ships there's no ports in paraguay right like it's a landlocked Mm. country it's harder Mm. to get to not a lot of natural resources there so i you know i wanted to to ask you about that opening poem a bit could you could you speak a bit about that process you've kind of mentioned was it one of the later Mm -hmm. ones that you
1: yeah uh, wrote here yeah definitely um and so the the notion of like there's no Jaguars here and I don't know how to pronounce this word. And, um, my friend, Jeff Martin, who's also a writer, who's also Canadian, he, um, gave me a term that was really clarifying. And I didn't, I didn't know it before I had put the book together, but it's helped me really think about what I was actually trying to do or what I ended up doing, I guess. Um, he mentioned the apophatic tradition, um, in religion, religious practices, which is like defining a thing by what it is not. And I, I mean, I think I, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with it beforehand, but it it means like, you know, not being able to the ineffable name of God, you can't describe a thing Mm. that is beyond our comprehension. So you can only say what it's not. And I found it really enlightening for how I've been talking about, at least in that first poem, how I've been talking about, you know, who the speaker is and what his relationship to the country is or countries. um, And even just and the languages, of course, as well, because it's not, it's, it's it's a it's trying to be as authentic as possible in the sense that this is a it's a it's a foreign language i guess in in another country but it also feels like something that belongs to the speaker belongs to me in a way that it sort of becomes tricky walking the line behind between um, appreciating the culture and appropriating the culture and i've Mm. I, i spent i spent like a while getting kind of in my head about that about like what is the what's the right tone to strike with regard to these topics? Is it am I is it too ironic and disingenuous? Am I being too authentic uh. and sentimental, or is it trying to kind of do both and, and navigate that a little bit? Um, hopefully, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see. You know how how it lands. Um, but
0: well, in in some of the uh, the other parts of the book are, you know, set in. In yeah. Illinois, which yeah. I'm assuming normal. that's where you grew up. In Bloomington. In Normal, that's Illinois. Right. Bloomington, Normal. And that's where you know we yeah. met you was in um, Bloomington, Normal. So that was an easy commute for you to get to the David Foster Wallace yeah. Conference. I got a few nice dopamine uh,
2: hits seeing those words in your book. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, yeah. um, soft memories. spot for normal. <laughs> yeah.
0: Maybe we should just pause there and say, did, did you go to grad school? In so I, I didn't.
1: School? I went did to go? college at Illinois Wesleyan. Oh. The other, the overpriced private school that's in town, but then I went off to the East Coast to Rutgers for for grad school.
2: Uh, Oh, cool!
0: So we did a podcast recording with uh, Jim Plath, who was from Illinois Wesleyan. Oh my god! All right, and he's the president of the John Updike Society. (laughs) Wow! So uh, he came to the conference, I think in 2017. I think 17, and we recorded with him and Charlie Harris. And then like a few months later, Charlie Harris mm, passed away. Wow. So, um, but anyways, uh, you being in Illinois there, um, you know, there is some nice juxtaposition later in the book. Um, I, I underlined a couple of phrases in the first, uh, actually, could you read the first like two or three couplets of that um, that first yeah. poem, the title totally poem? Yeah. Just, or as much of it yeah. as you want to read, honestly, but there, there's a, a couple of phrases in there I, I underline. Yep.
1: I'll, read the, I'll read the first bit here. So this is Yawate White. No jaguars wander my father's village. No panthers patrol the cane fields caged in bamboo fences, nestled among the biturusu, what passes for a mountain range in Paraguay, the cordillera Kawasu. You see, Spanish adjectives arrive after the noun they describe, clarifying notes that add color and context there is history and then there is history but there are no jaguars here only a pool of blood petrified into stone a place i call home tierra de Arcilla, clay so bright it stains orange that's
0: great that's great and the the first thing i underlined there is actually about that phrase of what passes for a mountain range Mm -hmm. in Paraguay, And this gets to that sort of stepchild status that the country has, where it's not Brazil, it's not Argentina, it's not Chile. It doesn't really have the mountains. It doesn't really have a coastline. Um, But then later on in the book, you say something similar about Mm -hmm. Illinois and that Illinois is sort of a landlocked country and, <laughs> in its yeah. own right. And it, it you have something like what passes for woods in yeah. Illinois. Um, so there, there's a nice sort of symmetry mm-hmm. there. I mean, do you think, I'm not saying like, why did your dad end up in Illinois? But like, were there similarities that you saw growing up? You know, I assume you've been back. To oh, Dakota yeah, yeah, we and, were, yeah, I yeah.
1: mean, I've been privileged enough to have traveled back every three or four years with my family. Family, oftentimes it'd be the whole family, and we'd go for like a month over winter break when we we're really like younger. And the first two weeks felt really long. You say, yes. as like a teenager, right? Why is that? Well, when you're, I mean, I'm starting to appreciate it more having a child now, right? Because like yeah. a week of my kid's life is a significantly larger percentage of her percentage. lifespan than <laughs> like for <laughs> yeah, us, right? Years, yeah. So I think for my dad, going back, a month was like minimum because he, you know, like literally everyone's there, his whole family is there, and at the time. Yeah. Until relatively recently, both his parents were still alive, and his siblings and all that. And so, for us to go down for a full month always, when we were kids, did feel like, oh my, it's like it doesn't end. We're just we're still here. Oh. Um, which <laughs> I look back on this now, though, and I realize what a privilege that was to be able to even to be able to travel like that. Um, yeah. And I don't not not a lot of this is in the book, but I've been thinking a lot about how different the migratory experience is for my dad, but I think also for other immigrants from from. Paraguay like they don't they don't walk they can't drive they can't take the train uh, La Bestia they have to they fly in most cases Mm -hmm. and like that's a that's a bit of a privilege but it's also then kind of compounded by the fact that Paraguayans are one of if not the smallest percentage of uh Latina Americans in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and so we're like a minority a minoritized population within a minoritized population even though in getting here didn't have to like struggle in those same ways. And so that's kind of a, it's kind of a mind in its own, right. Um, mm-hmm. But Matt, when you say like, I didn't appreciate how similar central Illinois is to Paraguay until later, <laughs> because yeah, he grew up on a farm in a village outside of a town. And then he actually went to high school. He, um, the Graham family um, hosted him as a, as a, as an exchange student in Gridley, Illinois. So it's like a village outside of a town in the middle of a cornfield. (laughs) It took me a while to look around and be like, oh my God, this is, of course, like, of course, this is where he landed and stayed for the rest of his life. (laughs) That's
2: funny. Yeah,
0: that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I want to go back to the sort of identity question there. And even in that trip you just described, because I'm wondering on those sorts of occasions of you going to Paraguay, like, do you pass Mm -hmm. as a Paraguayan half-immigrant or as an American who is not there really speaking the language, um, and then when you come back, do you feel Paraguayan, um, but passing as white? Like, what is that sort of yeah, identity? Yeah, there?
1: And that the passing also was a big part of that language, the, the word choices there in the, the opening poem, and then the later poem about the Christmas trees. Because it's like, it's a thing that's sort of like another thing. You can kind of get away with it, but it's not really that thing. And the same was definitely true for our travels there, at least as kids. We grew up in, my brothers and I grew up in Bloomington without a, certainly without a Paraguayan American um, community. And we didn't really have a Latino American community, not really either. And so we didn't grow up speaking Spanish. Um, we grew up with mostly white kids on the block, um, in the suburban block. And we were, we were pretty conspicuously, you know, the, the brown kids from two Cheviot. <laughs> But then we go down to Paraguay, it would always be in the winter when we would be pasty white and it would be their summertime and we would stand out for <laughs> like the, the reverse reasons, smart. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I never I hadn't really thought about it that way, but coming back to the US, it was always it was like a reverse culture shock, but not really, because that's where we came from, right? But the reverse culture shock of coming back to the States and landing in snowfall and winter. We've been gone for a month, so now we're all tan and dark. Yeah. Um and and nowadays or I guess the last time I was down there was right like literally right before the pandemic shut everything down like I landed back in the states March 1st or whatever and by the end of that week we had canceled wow. classes and Chicago wow. had a lockdown and all that and so I got like one last trip in and it doesn't so much the reverse like the culture shock is no longer that much of a thing now that I'm, I'm you know I'm a grown up um but the hmm reconnecting to that sense of family and home and culture is so much more profound because it just carries all the weight of the memories and the family. And now as family, as I age, as family ages, other folks have passed away and you can kind of see like how the ties to not just the culture, but it's literally the people who we are related to down there. Like My child hasn't been. We, I intend to take her in the next couple of years or so when she can really remember it and absorb it. But we're not going to be going down every three or four years. I hope to mm-hmm. go more than once. But like it's just different when your parent is the one who's from there because they then yeah. kind of take the helm in, in communication and navigation, like everything. You know, right. And so now that, yeah. that's going to be it's on me in many ways, which is wild, which is just wild.
2: It kind of reminds me of your of the poem Autonym on page 21 where you're uh talking about your daughter, she sees people and she says people, and then but eventually she'll turn to me and ask, What do we call ourselves? Then how should I reply? Are we the X in Latinx, the at in Latina, mongrel and matizo both, but Americano, Dios, anything but that, like God, anything but American? <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. part of the the uh, identity, you know, sort of navigation, negotiation stuff at work yes. here. So you think about like, yeah, heritage, nationality. What, what is? How do you? How is this defined for us and for our family? Yeah, yeah exactly. Really, and
1: uh, and having to admit, because I had a friend read it, the same friend who had mentioned apo, apophatic traditions, kind of questioned that last line. Kind of questioned it. And be like, mm-hmm. well, but shouldn't you gesture to the fact that it is? It is the case. Like you and your and your children or the speaker and their children, whatever they are growing up in the U S they are Americans. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of pushed back and I just, I wanted to stick with that one. Cause it is, it's supposed to be a little funny. It's supposed to be kind of a humorous line. The poem's yeah, all yeah. about like, Oh, we need to connect to people more. We need more metaphor. But then like, Oh no, no, yes. no, we're not, we're not that thing. Um, But also the book, I hope, (laughs) tries to, yeah, like you say, complicate notions of what it even means to be American or Americano Mm -hmm. or whatever and to kind of unpack that. And this isn't in the book, but this came from one, I think, you know, sometimes we get these core memories or experiences when we're young and they just really inform like our our thinking about the world. Like so many, many years ago, like 20, 30 years ago, my dad made a comment. I said something about. Like, I don't even remember if I asked him like what it felt like to come to America or whatever for the first time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And his response was like, I've, I'm, he's like, I've always been from America.
2: And I remember oh, that because I was like, oh snap.
1: Because well, my dad's not like, I don't know, he's not super, super I don't know, progressive or whatever. But to say something yeah. like that, I was like, oh shit, you're right, like I guess it's all, <laughs> it is all America, isn't it? And that really mm-hmm. stuck with me because I was like, oh wow, you conceptualize this even differently than I imagined, than I perhaps thought that you had. So that was an interesting awakening, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm
0: well and there's you know a f- sort of white person tendency to think of america as just united states of america and obviously if you travel to central america or south america or other even in mexico there are people who have very strong feelings that there is more to america than just the united states of america and um, even when i was looking up the guaraní language it's classified as an american (laughs) language meaning a language of the americas of which there are were thousands of indigenous you know languages before they were wiped out so that that idea of america i thought it was very brilliant actually to put that into that that poem um just because it's there's so much (laughs) baggage on that term um and you know and and identity-based mainly being like white settlers yeah. versus indigenous mm-hmm. people, which is also kind of at the the core of the national identity, I would say mm-hmm. of Paraguay, um, or at least going back into the 17th century mm-hmm. um, uh, at least. Um, and I wanted to, uh, one of my favorite poems in this book is the comprehensive list of famous fictional Paraguayans. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I love that list because I think, it's not something I've ever seen like assembled in there, but like when I was going through it, I was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is great. This is great. And it's, it's really like pop culture, but also um, films and, and books that have used Paraguay for their purposes. And that's in a way you're adding to your own,
2: yeah that's true yourself, and there's that note in the forward that you're the first uh, paraguayan american poet to publish in english ever in the u.s So it's a pretty cool it's just yeah. crazy, yeah, crazy. <laughs> but it's pretty it's cool crazy, that you get to I mean... like do that moon landing you know
1: yeah i've been i've been thinking a little bit about that. i mean i'm very like i'm very proud of that i'm also very grateful um the rigo rigoberto who wrote the forward has been a mentor mm-hmm. of mine for for a long long time Cool. and so it's like a great privilege and pleasure to to publish with um university of Arizona press and I've been thinking about why that is, because like, there's lots of Chicano poets, there's lots of Dominican-American poets, there's lots of Puerto Rican and New York, and like, you fill in the blank, there's, there's some of them about, and some more than others. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And when I think about the Paraguayans, I know mostly through my dad, but now I'm meeting more, I'm meeting more Paraguayan-Americans as well, sort of through literary circles. It's not actually that surprising, because most Paraguayans who come over don't, Um, have the luxury I guess of of pursuing the kinds of literary fields that I that I found myself in and I don't and I like it it casts a new light on some of the decisions I made and also some of the um, pushback that I had early on like in college being I wouldn't say required but strongly encouraged by my father to take an economics class and i'm sure it was interesting like i, I think yeah. i think now i would appreciate it but at the time i didn't know what i was you know i was not doing the assignments yeah. or the reading it was so dry i just wanted to read poems and literature or whatever and My i did that
2: pushed me into business school right after high school I was like i don't know what i am interested in i don't yeah. I found out very quickly it was not business i got 35 percent in accounting so i i can I right
1: yeah but that's coming from somewhere you know that's not coming from yeah. anything other than like I think this would be good for you. Cause like, this is what I know. My, my dad didn't mm. know shit about poetry or, or, or publishing books. No one I in my neither. family did. And <laughs> I think that that's true for most Paraguayans and Paraguayan Americans is they don't okay. get the kinds yeah. of jobs that require reading and writing for a living. Right.
0: Well, and, and most of those in popular cultural representation, like you're putting in that poem are working as cooks and cleaners oh, okay. and landscaping or background as, you know, maybe in the drug cartel or something, um, my favorite is that joke from bottle rocket, which you, you listed here where, um, uh, Luke Wilson falls in love with the maid and he's like, wow, you have a lovely accent. What part of Mexico are you from? And (laughs) she's (laughs) Paraguay, and like, (laughs) it just kills me. Um, but it's just so perfect too, for like white people, just assuming that, Latina right. is from yeah, Mexico. Yeah. That's so American. Uh, they just right? had Such no like, Wow, Paraguay. Yeah. Okay. Never met anyone yeah. from Paraguay. Yeah. Um, so that I mean that being just a further evidence of like the small stature of the country, even on a global stage, the sort of forgottenness mm-hmm. of it. Um, and really even for well-educated people who have degrees in literature, never heard mm-hmm. of Guarani, um, never heard of it um, as a written language or used in poetry so it is something very new that you're doing here it feels like it does it feel that way to you that this is like there's not a lot of forebears for you it
1: does it does i think that i'm most conscious of it though in um for the foregrounding of the whiteness like mm-hmm. there's certainly the you know the Wadani and the Paraguayan piece and all that it was just which is fascinating and interesting as someone who like lives it but also i'm just genuinely I, I learn a lot more too as i as I think I, a couple times in the book, I refer to like learning this, a lot of it from the internet and from Wikipedia and from Google searches. Hmm. And it's weird to have like my primary source of information for kind of who I am and where I came from being my dad, who is not super yeah. reliable as a, as a source of information, which is fine. Like people, you know, I'll, I'll text him and ask for, how do you spell X, Y, or Z? Like, how do you spell this word? Hmm. And he'll, he'll send me back whatever. And that's what ended up in the book. I look online and like the you know more formally <laughs> accepted spelling is t- totally different it's completely different but I'm like oh this is how I learned it so this is what's going to go into the book
2: Yeah that's cool I like that
1: As far as the like well, the foregrounding the whiteness part of it feels also very important to me because that um, that it would feel disingenuous to pretend like that's not also part of where I come from and then also where mm-hmm. by extension most many of the speakers are speaking from in the book and We'll, we'll see. I don't know. That's the part that makes me the most nervous, I think, because with whiteness comes certain traditions of, like, like I mentioned earlier, appropriation or uh, exploitation and even like oppression and silencing and stuff. And so to try to do both felt it felt tricky. It also felt necessary because like I'm not I'm not sure how else to, to do it. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, and there are poets who I, I think and you fall into this category that their i don't know creative energy is inherently tied up with mm-hmm. politics in some way and that your creative energy is very much about um, it feels very much tied up with representation mm-hmm. right and that you're also concerned about um, you know the identity part of it alone like if you really care about identity then you know w- where you land on some of these issues is going to be fairly Hmm. obvious in in my experience. Um, And so I do have some questions for you about uh, basic white people (laughs) like myself (laughs) who don't have this experience of growing up with any kind of real racial Hmm. identity at all. And I mean, that's clearly, you, you've made it, you've said that that's kind of who you grew up around, Mm -hmm. right? was probably white people who had no concept of, of race other than white being mm-hmm. the default, right? So you have a pretty scathing poem in here called Basic White <laughs> People, right? Basic, Basic White. white. I, what was mm-hmm. the title Basic of it? Basic White. Um, yeah.
2: Page 72.
0: Um, it's a, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that poem? Because it's like you hear it often with like even like paint colors right like it's just a basic white (laughs) or you know with with like like basic bitch that kind of (laughs) yeah yeah right right like basic white girl like and it's like not even considered like a racial slur really it's just sort of a default mode but what what was your thinking behind that
1: yeah so that poem basically did very much come from sort of The sources where you two have identified it is it is meant to be derogatory on the one hand and it's also it's supposed to echo some of the other there's like some color play throughout um one of the poems is called himmelblau which is blue and like light like sky blue in german and there's a that echoes some other parts of the book but this poem in particular used to be a lot longer and i wrote it very much as almost like a pro actually it was i wrote it very much as a protest poem um because the first time i read it in a much longer much messier uh form was at a, a poetry reading here in chicago at a bar like right after trump's election first election mm. for posterity oh god um that's good it was right after the a bunch of poets getting together and just reading like angry poems and that's that's what it what it was i didn't come oh, back yeah. to it until the book until i was kind of finalizing the book and realizing like i needed to like tidy it up a little bit I cut it down from like eight or nine pages to whatever it is now, three, four, or five, or whatever.
2: That's the longest poem in the book, I think, right? It's it's easily the yeah. longest poem in yeah. the book. Yeah.
1: And I, I still felt weird about it right up until I had sent it off to the publishers for like final approval. and it, But a, a, a friend had helped me think about it as like maybe the most significant poem that asserts what is, as opposed to so many of the poems talking about what is not, or what's lacking, or what's missing. This one is very much... I mean, it follows the same the same format, right? It's like it is this, it is this, it is this, and it's supposed to be a little funny. It's supposed to be a little, yeah, a little scathing, um, and it's also supposed to be a little bit of the book's sort of consciousness turning on itself a little bit. Um, Hmm. I, had, I had a lot of fun writing it and I have to be careful though where I read it because sometimes it lands really really well and other times it kind of just it's confusing I think so I need to I need to deploy it with care
2: there are certain parts of Texas where if you read this it would either a <laughs> enrage people to gun violence or be just like go way over their heads I don't know exactly maybe both exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> but in certain states in the U.S. I think you're pretty safe to read this and everyone would be like yeah yes yeah can you want to read us like a few lines from this to give us like a sample of what we're talking about there's so many parts that i could pick that are that are so (laughs) apt here (laughs) part Um, about tesla is really good you
1: pick yeah i'll just read i'll read like the first page or so cool this is basic white basic white is so basic right Basic white is double speak for supremacy. Basic white enshrines individual liberty. Basic white f- lives for private property. Basic white takes what it wants when it wants it. Basic white bleeds what it needs to survive. Basic white includes you, if you like. Basic White j'adores yoga, tacos, headdressing. Basic White buys overpriced merchandise from its sports teams. Basic White hangs Indians, Redskins, and Braves on its racks. Basic White calls Basic White business back. Basic White hosts the Zoom call, crowdsources, starts up. Basic White co-work, happy hour foosball. Basic White tablet, dual screen, laptop. Basic White salary, medical, and dental. Basic White annual, physical exam. Basic White braces and corrective lenses. Basic white migraine the size of a school bus. Basic white blue light lens flare flare up. Basic white meditate and basic white smile. Basic white hit send on the Outlook invite. Basic white agenda action item KPI. Basic white makes the ass. Gauges bandwidth, talks offline. And it goes on. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was really funny. funny. It's Uh it's
2: so, I just see my, like I just see element moments of myself in this and just cringe, you know, (laughs) like it's does the job really
0: well. <laughs> well, you guys are both teachers, yeah. but like I feel like there's um uh, a fair amount of like just white corporate yes. which is the default. Yeah. Like do you you have experience in that world or finance a corporate? Yeah, or my first like job that? out of
1: college, I worked for my uncle, a uh, white uncle. He's actually in the poem, but he has a different name. Uh we at their web design company and I learned I learned a lot. I learned way more than in that econ class that I I probably passed, but I it was like for <laughs> a year and <laughs> It's another one of those things where my aunt and uncle had this web design company. They built websites for like Chicago Symphony Orchestra and other big venues where they really pioneered a ticketing software or whatever. I I don't know a whole lot about it anymore, Um, but they gave me the job. They gave me a place to stay and I learned a lot. I learned just so much about how to work with other people and clients and like money and budgets and stuff that I had no clue about having a degree in, you know, English and I also then quickly realized uh, that I I'm, this is not what I want to do with my life. I'm not good at. I don't care about it. And so that's when I applied to grad school and went to school. But so so I hate to say this, man. But the other bookend of that. So that's where it kind of started. The other bookend of it is um, having been in particular environments in higher ed and hearing all this same nonsense in very long meetings where very little happens. And there's why are there so many people in this room? Uh, what like so it's it is it's supposed to be i mean it takes the poem takes some liberties right because like can you call corporate culture like white i mean i think so it's not that simple it's not that straightforward Mm. it's more complicated than that but i do think there is power in calling it that thing in order to then to either start a conversation or as the poem does try to kind of trace a line between some of the you know, silly nonsense of corporate speak to some of the more sinister instantiations of, of white supremacy mm-hmm. culture, which kind of happened yeah. a little bit later with sort of the violence and et cetera.
0: Well, and in institutional racism, yeah. I'm thinking that there's institutions are so good at these administrative tasks, these bureaucracy um, structures where... You know, I was also thinking of well, one higher ed for sure has just ballooned in the amount of bureaucracy and administration that is involved, and the money making sort of corporatization of the whole process. But also going back to Paraguay, like I think this is why the Spaniards were successful in colonizing almost every Latin American country was that they were really good at administration and putting up a lot of bureaucracy and putting up a lot of uh, institutions. I was reading about one particular kind of like monastery that they would build Mm -hmm. in Paraguay that was like a school, a church, a government. And it was like all in one building. And this became like all of these institutions, which didn't really exist with like a, you know, loosely organized sort of farming hunting community, (laughs) right? Like they didn't have separate buildings for all of these things and so this sort of administration that the spaniards brought was really that form of colonization yeah. mm-hmm. so i i was impressed that you i, I asked that question because i figured you had to have had some kind of a job that was just mind numbing and <laughs> in, in its uh corporate uh you know meetings and processes and all of that <laughs> corporate speak so you know, not a lot of academics have that and I, I mean maybe they do now just working in academia yeah. but I uh, actually think it's really valuable to, even if it forces you to run for yeah. the hills. I think I it's, mean, not, part, it's Part of my job
1: too. now, I teach at the city colleges, which is you cannot extricate it from the city of Chicago. Like I am a city employee essentially. right? Okay, yeah. And that comes with a lot of benefits, but it also comes with a lot of uh, problems because as a, an individual college, we cannot actually do that much. Everything has to be run up and down a pole. Mm. And it's tough because I wouldn't, uh, you know, maybe I'll have a different job in the future, but the students I work with, their lives are so interesting and they're just the people who are most deserving of a quality education. it's It's regularly difficult to square that commitment with the bullshit. <laughs> so yeah.
0: yeah yeah, and it's just lack of independence, yeah. you know I mean, and that's what I feel about nation states too is like you have this other sort of institution bearing or mixed up mm-hmm. in your business and um it's very rare actually these days to find an institution uh we were talking about libraries on a previous Mm. episode because i'm on the board of a library that is truly independent one of only 13 in texas that's not a division of a city or Mm. a school or some other institution and like i had worked at um, university presses before in new york one of which was like housed in the department of libraries and it was like (laughs) makes no sense at all right but you're just like, well, you could be placed, you know, what if the city colleges now reports up through the city mm-hmm. manager? It's like, I, I don't know. It makes no sense at all, but you're in this sort of corporate,
1: I don't know. Matrix. Uh,
0: I'm trying <laughs> to think of the right word. Yeah. Like matrix. Right. And so I, I think, you know, you having that experience, um, it does feel like that that is, would you say that that is tied to some kind of racial identity yeah, as well? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I hope, I hope yeah. that the book is able to, is to to leverage that language in a way that reflects the white supremacist culture where that I think a lot of this derived from which a lot of this derives, but also tries to complicate it a bit um, in terms of like you were saying, Matt, like, so yeah, when the Jesuits colonized uh, Paraguay, like they instituted pr- practices and actual infrastructure that has forever changed the course of what wasn't even a country yet. Like those people who live there forever changed the yeah. course of, of their lives and future generations etc and so to try to it's it can be tricky i'm not the only poet to do this but to kind of trace that back and either in search of i don't know if it's in search of origin or maybe truth i guess if not facts because sometimes facts are also confusing um but to try to then come i guess combine it all without it being too terribly overwhelming or messy in in a book of poetry which for you know they're pretty small by by definition um (laughs) Like I said, though, I kind of felt like I had to, I wanted to get this together and put it out so that it can be its thing and then I can kind of go from there because I don't think I'm done like there's a lot that didn't make it into the book that I hope to explore one day in other poems like um, one of the courtesans slash partners of one of the dictators in early colonial Paraguay was a woman named eliza lynch and she's irish and that's that's happens to be my mom's you know her family's last name her family name and they are also irish and i was like what are the what are the odds that a lynch would go down to paraguay uh, centuries no. before we would i was like that's nuts i gotta write about that but i didn't really oh, <laughs> do you think you're related i mean probably i don't know <laughs> that's one of the probably. poem titles so right? back lynch, far enough. what is
2: it lynch christmas lynch christmas lynch? yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> made me think of like david lynch right away and then i had terrifying thoughts about what a lynchian christmas could look like but
1: the lynch uh, family christmas yeah special yeah
2: (laughs) national lampoons meets eraser head or something
0: in that poem though
1: about the um
0: fictional representations of famous Mm. paraguayans i i wanted to ask if there were any like good portrayals of paraguay or could you recommend uh any other like paraguayan writers to us
1: so part part of what i've tried to do just on my own is educate myself in that regard um i did i did learn that there is there's a paraguayan american poet named ce wallace interesting wallace um she's in new york and she'll Mm. actually she'll she has agreed to join me for a virtual launch party for the or like a launch event via zoom for the book on february 20th um and so that'll be that'll be cool but i didn't you know the only reason we connected was because before, as the book was um, sort of coming together, I thought I should, I was, I was advised to kind of get my social media presence back up and like coherent somewhat. <laughs> so I spent like weeks and weeks yeah. doing that and I, yeah, whatever. It, so there, there we are now, but I did discover this person. I was like, oh shit, there's like a nut, there's someone else. Like let's, let's connect. Um, and I do have, I'll have at an event in Chicago on the 22nd, that's the Thursday following, um, I've hired a, a harpist to play some Paraguayan music because uh i don't know how much this really made it into the book but i've been thinking about a lot lately the i grew up listening to paraguayan music and christian rock and uh the paraguayan music (laughs) it was like all my dad would blast on saturday mornings when we do chores or whatever and i i hated it i I, hate every song sounded the same it's all accordions and guitars and harps and no thank you but now and then your mom's
2: rocking like petra in the minivan or something (laughs) yes
1: yeah dude yes (laughs) So many, white menu so there. much bad rock. <laughs> it's just like, just make us whatever. That's <laughs> gonna take a whole like a therapy session to unpack. My t- yes, <laughs> yeah, I have some Christian experience rock.
2: with this too. Yeah, Christian trauma. Yeah, I grew up with Christian
0: rap, so we could talk. Oh about
2: yeah, that so. too. DC,
0: talk. but um,
1: but but now you know, now I tell you what's on my Spotify is I've come back to discover a lot of these songs from from Bonawe, and I'm like, oh, these are actually quite beautiful. Yeah, like heart. And so it's taken a while to come back around and appreciate, I mean, the the harp is incredible. Mm. I did not, I did not appreciate how hard it is to play that instrument. And so I'm excited to like have someone play that.
2: That's yeah. nuts. It's very unwieldy. The part about, you know,
0: uh, other poets and uh, other writers. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about creativity. Like, you know, we, we've talked about a lot about the experiences you've had growing up and sort of even going to Paraguay and having, this sort of split identity growing up in rural Illinois. Like, can you talk about the sort of creative urge that you had to take that experience and put it into to a poem? Um, you know, I believe that anyone can, can write, anyone can create, just like anyone can cook food, right? Like some better than others, but uh, that, that creative urge where you're like, man, I want to sit down and write about this. Can you, can you talk to mm-hmm. us a little bit about how this sort of came out, mm-hmm. Uh, and expressed itself it, going back 15 years, or even in the past, probably oh, changed yeah. significantly yeah, for sure. the past two um, or three
1: years. I mean, I I remember very clearly the two, I guess, first, maybe not strongest, but first literary, I would call them literary influences uh, that I remember, because it was seventh grade. And I was finally, like, I had my disc man and I was able to... <laughs> kind of explore my own tastes oh, yeah. and so i was listening i probably shouldn't have been i don't know how old i guess 12 i would have been 12 13 listening to eminem uh eminem's very first album uh and really being blown away by the rhyme schemes and the wordplay and again probably shouldn't been listening. there's some you know, questionable messaging in, in those but but still also then being in language arts class which they used to call language arts i don't know if they still do <laughs> reading they still do yeah, yeah, I hear that. We would read. I remember very clearly reading Edgar Allan Poe and just appreciating, like, oh, you can put rhymes at the end and in the middle and in between, and you can like echo sounds all throughout. It blew my mind, and so I wrote, I wrote dozens and dozens of pages, which were just there were somewhere between a rap lyric and Edgar Allan Poe, I guess, just all, all in rhymed, you know, just on, <laughs> <Yeah>. on, on. <laughs> telltale, and hype. that that felt it felt very. It felt very authentic. It felt very liberatory because I could just like put the words down on the page. And as a young person with with something to say, I, it was nice to have an outlet. It really wasn't until college and then especially grad school where I discovered forms and something even more empowering and freeing and challenging about the constraints of poetic forms, forcing different forms of creativity or different forms of, different like ways around those constraints, right? And without that, I don't, I, I know for sure I wouldn't have been able to do most of what has come together in the book um and i've been able to really explore like uh like you had mentioned the the prose poems before and the prose poems i think it took me a while to realize this but i think a lot of the the more like formally prose poems came from trying to kind of separate out or square out experiences that felt separated from me or that did not feel like i had access to and so i was going to just write them in this very constrained look i guess it's a form but the shape on the page and then being able to experiment that and see how can i break that apart because some of the prose poems sort of start to disintegrate um some of them then become just single lines mono stitch stanzas and i wouldn't the shape Summer of the submarine the of yep the submarine. which <laughs> i had a i had one of the um i don't know if it's a typesetter or what you call them now because it's all digital but they send a note back pretty late on with a a note that was like Compositor. Does it need to be oriented on the side? Can't we just do it vertically? And I was like, no. No, no. Absolutely not. It uh, needs yeah. to be on the side. I'm like, okay, rotate. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. That
0: that's an artist right there. Okay. I and, and that I think that does make it more uh, you know, interesting when you're flipping through it. Um, absolutely. Yeah, hmm. this
2: book's very visually arresting and, hmm. and the cover as well. My son, who's been obsessed by this cover all week, with the like man wearing an animal on his head, like he just can't understand this concept, and he just keeps pointing to it. Uh, can, you, can you walk us through the cover a little bit? It's such a gorgeous yes, cover. I, I am really so like this object.
1: happy with how the cover art came together. I had. That's f- yeah, awesome. <laughs> I knew I wanted my, my only criteria, and then how it ends up is wild. My only criteria was I want it to to pop. I need it to be interesting to look at. I, I read a lot of poetry. I love I love most of the poetry that I read. We need, as a community, we need to work on our covers because most of them, you look at it, you wouldn't even look at it once. <laughs> you just look right past it. Um, but so that was my only criteria. So I went to Google and I Googled Yawarite, enter, and got some jaguars, whatever, and Google Images and found, though, also some art, a lot of art, like dozens and dozens of, of pieces by Alan Barry Reese. And he does this sort of it's it's kind of pulpy like comic book sort of style and one of them mm-hmm. well i found yeah. several of them that i really liked that featured jaguars pretty prominently and so i reached out to uh, his people i guess or his representation and i was just like hey can we use one of these for the cover of my book i don't have much money like i'd have a budget of zero dollars but we you know i could try to work mm-hmm. something out and they got back and he the artist uh, alan had actually suggested um, this piece in particular and it was originally or- oriented horizontally and had some different iconography around it that, that got swapped out but he suggested this one and so he reoriented it added some stuff you know obviously my name and whatever and I didn't find out until I had actually gotten these printed um, arcs with some of the the <laughs> the symbolism behind it. I just thought it looked cool but if you'll notice in some of the corners, it's telling it's telling a story. It's telling a very specific story. It's telling yeah. the story of Yawarate Aba, which is like uh, it's like a werewolf but with jaguars, right? So it's like a well. The way the story goes is um, a native person in Paraguay uh, who has been blessed by the missionaries, acquires these powers, these shamanic powers, to like witch doctor powers to turn into a jaguar, and mm. can turn into an like there's like a shapeshifter. Uh, in order to kill the jaguar man, you have to use—it's—it's it's bonkers. You have to use either a, a blessed machete, so a machete that's been blessed, or a bullet that's oh, been blessed. Oh yeah, done. there's the holy water sparkling mm-hmm. on yeah, it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then after you, after one kills the the jaguar man you have to kill yourself by decapitating yourself. <laughs> I was like, that just seems oh, wow. unnecessary. That's so extra. <laughs> but to learn after the fact that there's this whole mythology baked right into what I just thought was some cool looking art. It number one, it means I like big props and trust in the artist, you know, the visual artist mm-hmm. to choose the, the right piece. Um, but then also I just feel so fortunate that number one, I, th- I think it looks cool but also it has it tells a whole other story that I I, I wasn't even prepared to be part of the, the book itself. Um, That's great. I'm glad I asked. Yes, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> so wild.
0: One of my last questions for you, I wrote this down thinking we would get to maybe more of this. We haven't really got into a lot of it, but maybe this question will spur on some of it, which is just... Do you have any advice for white people on mm. how to <laughs> be better? <laughs> like, this is a very, it's a very broad question, but like, in the context of not just your book and the the issues that it brings up, but it, and I'm not saying like white people are mm. the the bad people here because you're half white yourself. It's complex, yeah. but the that's my no question. Do you basic. have advice <laughs> for white people on how maybe how to be yeah. good? At, Good ally, but also like you know, do the right thing. Like I don't, I don't know what I'm really yeah, asking sure. here. But like, tell first me of all, I, what, I do what think of
1: myself be? as all white and all Paraguayan, right? I I've, I think a lot about about no, 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 not at all, oh, not at all. I think that's that's what you know, sorry for say, saying, but it has always struck that. me as strange. It's like people who are biracial aren't like half and half they get it each from both but they are all of each right and so and like for my daughter i mean this is also this is little in the book but for my daughter she is all paraguayan she's all white she's also all jewish and she's gonna have mm-hmm. a whole different journey ahead of her navigating mm-hmm. all that nonsense
2: but, yeah no kidding right we'll look forward to her book of poetry in <laughs> God, 25 yeah. to 35 called my years dad's confusing explores all this <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think the best, one of the one of the most eye-opening things that I was able to do, even as someone who, I mean, I identify as a person of color, but I also, I'm also a white person, um, is to understand that white is a racialized category itself. Like we're so often just believe that white is default and like there are people of color and minoritized populations, but in fact, white is a race. It was created. I highly recommend The Creation of the White Race, um, a book written, oh God, was it in the 60s or 70s, which puts forward a pretty interesting thesis, which is that, Capitalism created white people because it was easier to bond, you know, Irish and Italian and Lithuanians together than against, mm. you know, at the time, um, African and African American and black folks. Um, and to kind of pit those parties against one another. Mm. Um, but so but so, yeah, and I think the the other thing that I just think in general, most most white people need to do uh, is be a little less precious when confronted and have the like have the audacity to say yeah i get that i understand why systemically and structurally these are big problems that i benefit from Mm -hmm. personally and culturally and familially and it actually is my responsibility to do something about that you know i I feel Mm -hmm. like perhaps probably your audience will already be thinking along those lines but it is something that i continue to think about and wrestle with and hope to hope to also share especially with Like students and younger folks as well, but also just like my family and people I know, because not everybody, not everybody has done that kind of thinking. And I do think it is important. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think actually, it it's crucial. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, and this this moment that we're living in right now is one in which, you know, DEI departments are being dismantled across the country, um, really for out of uh, a reason that sounds like something. I thought we had progressed past in the past 30 years, which Mm. is sort of like charges of reverse racism, which is just so like (laughs) middle school argument, you know, that like people who literally have not thought about this more than, you know, reading a headline on something and are like, oh yeah, that's Mm -hmm. reverse race. It's like, really, that's what you're gonna go with. But that's a lot of the reasoning for taking down DEI departments right now. So, you know, I bring this up partly because you know i felt even going back before 2020 before even you know ferguson Mm. that there there's there's enemies out there like there's people who are actively yeah you know and you mentioned charlottesville in the book and like there, there are actual like growing racist forces that are trying to recruit people over in a pr war um so i i think that that's good advice to be um you know, more, more educated and well read. I feel like it's it's sort of like, yeah, we're preaching to the choir in some ways, but also like the the progress we've made, it feels like has we've gone back. Sort of I don't know if you feel down, that yeah. way, but I, I felt like in the past few years we've we've taken a lot of steps back. Yeah. Um and I'm hopeful you mentioned hope too. And I am hopeful that we can take you know, things don't go linear, right? They go back and then they go forward again. I'm hopeful that we go forward again, but um it's, it's really hard yeah. right now, especially yeah. in places no. like Texas.
2: No. Um, no, absolutely Illinois not. is
0: not immune to it either. Canada is not immune to it. There's uh, there's uh, mm-hmm. racist people in every city, country, state in the world. So, um, This has been great. That was basically where I wanted to, to, to land on. And not that like I go around <laughs> asking poets for advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do turn to poetry a lot. I read a lot of poetry for consolation for inspiration um mm. for information but don't write it myself um so i i really enjoyed this style of writing like again mm. i i like anything that's totally. like hard to categorize and like we've just been calling it poetry but like actually think it's more complex than that so i hope people yes. do go out and pick up the book and read it for themselves because i think there's a lot not only would you learn a lot about Paraguayan culture and food and r- language, but also um, mm. it's just fun. It is. Like it's, it's a fun, fun to read.
2: In terms of like a final question or a final thought from me, there's a lot about fatherhood in this book mm. that goes both ways, like your own father and being a father. Um, you got some moments about your own father, like poor another and another mm. to this day, another, another, and then you chronicle. Uh, I think with your brother, the the sort of a drunken flight to Paraguay, where you're just like barfing in between the, between the windows, seeing your own seats from just day drinking, like, and then like, you know, how generational stuff and fathers and all that stuff. I mean, that's a big theme in infinite jest, of course. Mm -hmm. And and you have one poem titled uh, manger made by hands Mm -hmm. In this book, mm-hmm. page seventy-eight, I I assume that's a reference to Wallace's "Church Not Made with Hands" and from brief interviews, it's certainly. You an know, echo. Can you speak a bit more yeah. about your thoughts? <laughs> He's on like, no, it's fatherhood not. both ways, <laughs> <laughs> certainly. Yeah, no,
1: no, it is. I'm, actually, I'm glad you. I was gonna as one of my like sign-offs, I wanted to bring it back yeah. to Wallace a little bit because yeah, yeah, it's yeah, pretty, yeah. it's pretty far removed from most of what he was writing about. I mean, whiteness is there, sure, but yeah, the yeah, major yeah. made by hands. Yeah, there's definitely an echo. And actually, I, I actually thought you were gonna mention a poem. Um, God, I gotta memorize the page numbers. There's one, yeah, San Francisco Potrero, where the two women go and visit the the cemetery. That, that oh, yeah, yeah. portion, mm-hmm. or that um, it's a prose poem. That one I modeled actually very, very closely off of one of the opening passages in The Pale King. Mm-hmm. There's, it, there's mm-hmm. it's very similar. I kind of, you know, I swapped out some of the language, but I tried to keep the sentence structure. I, this was an old one I wrote a long, long time ago when I was actually oh, trying cool. to learn how to write prose. I was, taking, I was taking passages, early, early passages that were published online or elsewhere from The Pale King and kind of mimicking the sentence structure. Because, you know, what he does in those, I feel like what he does in a lot of those passages is, like, he's freed up to, like, it's like a different kind of syntax that he's worked out. And I was just mesmerized by it. And I tried to imitate it here. Uh, and then some of the Q&A, so there's, I mean, they're, they're like joke poems, I guess. They're sort of dark jokes um, with the Google Translate or whatever, the kind of the Q&A's I did very much borrow the ellipses um, in place of any kind of response from from mm. interviews as well. Which um,
0: Wallace actually borrowed from Manuel Puig.
1: Yeah, there you go. Latin See, we come full oh, circle. Right. Back to Latin America. There we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there go. Um, and
0: um, that um, opening of The Pale King, it was kind of a, a hobby horse of mine to say that I'm not really sure Wallace intended for that to be part of The Pale King that mm-hmm. was a decision by michael peach and it was published there are two of them um published under the titles of peoria in mm-hmm. the journal Agni. so very much as like prose poems mm-hmm. uh and i i have no idea that he had any idea of including those in a novel i think it works mm-hmm. great um and i i definitely think it's some of the more poetic stuff he's ever written so i'm Mm-hmm. really happy to hear that you know you being an illinois kid like the, it's yeah. basically an ode to illinois so yeah. I, I was reading you know your poem is sort of an ode um in a way and there, there's a, mm-hmm. you mentioned like other poems like an anthem so you've got a lot of you got a lot going on in this short book even though it's like hundred and something mm-hmm. pages it's a lot going
1: yeah. on I hope it's not too much. I hope it's not too much. No, no, no,
0: no, no. I, <laughs> oh, no, I like it.
1: I mean, I it's very manageable.
0: I think that's what yeah. art should be: is ornamentation mm. and detail, and you know how much can you fit into a page? That's one of the great things of poetry: is packing, mm. you know, a, a lot of meaning and emotion into a very small space. I I meant it as a pure compliment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, man.
0: Well, this has been great. So you mentioned that you're going to be back on social media in some way. Where can people find you? (laughs) Uh, Do you recommend people buy the book? I'm assuming through like bookshop or some local bookstore. Well, so
1: glad you asked. So glad you asked. The best thing anybody could do is go to their local bookshop, their local independent bookshop, or their local Barnes and Nobles if you still got one around ask specifically for you'll you what you'll probably have to spell it because it's hard to pronounce um bring the isbn number with you <laughs> yeah let me just <laughs> rattle just that just off show
2: there. them the
0: printout of
2: that. which is 970 970- <laughs> <laughs> um
1: yeah and i'll be doing i'll be doing some virtual readings and other other like appearances and stuff i don't really have a book tour because I, I i don't can't afford it but i'll be around doing stuff i do hope to make it to austin at some point um I was good i was this is a side note i promise we're wrapping up here i was going to go down to austin this year for the uh, the grand prix because F1, since the pandemic yeah. i have become obsessed with formula 1 wow. and i can't tell if, it's, oh, if it's authentic or if i just needed something to grab onto but i, I like went yeah, deep yeah. down the down the rabbit hole of that so i was almost i almost Ooh. went and then and then i didn't but maybe next year maybe next year <laughs> i'd love to go
2: what was there. the catalyst for that what got you into
1: it the <laughs> the netflix show drive to survive I was going to ask, yeah, okay. I haven't watched that yet, but it's been recommended to me a lot lately. It is. It's got a ridiculous t- It's a stupid name for a show. That's why I avoided sure, it for like yeah. a year. But then once you watch it, yeah. they do such a good job of making characters out of everybody involved that I was just mm-hmm. immediately engrossed. And I happened to then follow it in real time, the 2021 season, which be- which ended up being one of the most controversial, arguably the most entertaining season hmm. in decades. And that was my intro. What? I was like, wow, I'm hooked. This is great. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right time.
0: Yeah, I, I did really uh, like the Senna documentary, Ayrton Senna.
1: Um, I haven't seen that yet. I've oh, watch not watched that. That's that. okay. a
0: fantastic documentary, and it's you know he died. It came out in like 2010 or something, so it's kind of you know about the 80s and 90s. But it, it is fantastic mm. story of that guy. So I I was like on the verge of what you're saying now of like I could go down this rabbit hole. I could go yeah. really into Formula One. And <laughs> since they have built the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, there's a number of people in Austin who were sort of on the border of like, oh, I'll watch any kind of competitive race. And then they're just like, okay, I'm going. You know? yeah, yeah. They have a thing where you can drive your car on the track and stuff. And like, they have all kinds of other things It seems way
2: better there. than NASCAR, right? Oh, NASCAR yeah. seems so boring. Oh, yeah. Just hundreds cars, of laps? Trash, what? <laughs> Trash.
0: Anyways, well, if you do ever come down here to Grand Prix, um, I'd love to see you in Austin.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Great thank time. you guys this is this has been awesome this has been really great you're,
2: you're so welcome i feel like we only just scratched the surface I've, i wish we had another hour mm-hmm. because there's like so much more stuff going on in this book that we could talk about like fascism mm-hmm. america puppet dictatorships in south america in the cold war like um beautiful descriptions of fatherhood and mm-hmm. your daughter in this book that like put me on the verge of tears like this is a really rich wonderful book and i hope everyone who <laughs> listens to us goes out and buys it uh, pr- well, even pre-orders it so that you get a nice jump to getting this book out into the world and recommended and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this with yeah. us, Diego. It's been great.
0: Absolutely. Um, Dave, do we have mm-hmm. uh, any housekeeping on your agenda items here? Uh, I would say normally around this time of the year we would be releasing our uh year-end wrap-up episode and where we go through our sort of top books of the year and i would say that's going to be later we've kind of gotten on a cadence of doing that later than other people there's a lot of lists going around right now anyway so yeah we'll
2: probably do that next month in january hopefully like early-ish january this
0: is another thing people
2: can expect that i
0: hate about corporate america where you have to submit your like annual review on like december 12th and it's like half the month still oh, yeah. technically it's not the end of the year yet you know can I use
2: yeah that makes me the Spotify rap thing drives me nuts it's like November 30th and everyone's posting Like I'm like there's still a good two weeks of there's still time. records that could come out here like you know like show me this on December like, well, 31st well it's the
0: fiscal yeah. year which definitely was a white person who invented that <laughs> of like gross. well oh, yeah. it's, the year starts over just whenever I say it does okay whatever but our, yeah, our, right. our fiscal year will start over probably that year it wrap up in uh, January January rather than december so um more to come from us we still are around we have done we have not done a ton of episodes this year um i just will blame
2: yeah it's been slow life's been uh life's been i'll
0: just blame dave uh, energy
2: sapping yeah it's blame me absolutely having a two-year-old and trying to work full-time and do a podcast and lots of other things is um I'm finding it very challenging these days to keep any kind of regular release schedules. So thanks for bearing with us oh, this yeah. year oh, well, in our my kind pleasure, of yeah. glacial pace. <laughs> but if
0: you're still listening to this uh, at the hour mark here, we are um, still an active podcast. So don't unsubscribe from us in your feed. We still, we have plans of putting out, uh, you know, a, I would say a bunch more, but I'm like, Let's be honest. More episodes next year. Um,
2: I hope there's more next year than there right. were this year. More okay.
0: in 2024 than we did in. That's
2: our that's our attempted pledge. Um, but if you no promises. If you have <laughs>
0: feedback for us, we'd love to get an email. We have uh, at least one listener. I want to give a shout out to for sending us a um, yes. annual voice message um his name is
2: ben felonies diamond Ben
0: diamond, diamond. <laughs> um thank you With love getting those notes from people it just makes us feel like there are actually people listening to this when we put it out in the world rather than
2: mm-hmm.
0: um just no feed crickets you know so um i, I
2: feel think... like the death of twitter has maybe contributed to this feeling a little bit too mm-hmm. like you know that used to be a place where there's a lot of sort of engagement for us with people who listen and now it's like no one's going on there in the same kind of way I suspect so mm-hmm. self included yeah.
0: I, I still go on there just because I don't know any better and um, <laughs> you know the power of inertia is real
2: and uh, I've heard of Mastodon I've heard of Blue Sky I don't really know I have these signed are, up for all
0: but... of them and I've done an experiment yeah. where I posted on the same thing on like threads Mastodon Blue Sky mm-hmm. and I just got very little engagement on any of them yeah okay so, it's yeah. just whatever's easiest for you, but
2: we don't have... Come to Instagram. That's the best there. place. we still again. on to Instagram, us up, I think.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> um, all, right. all right. Well,
0: thanks again for being with us today, Diego. This has been great.
1: Yeah, thanks, Diego. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you guys.
0: Dave, you're making a lot of shuffling. I know. Just getting the book.